Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So, this is the uh, place where Wendy Sewell was murdered in uh, 1973. Clearly, the, it was a ferocious sexual assault, um, extremely violent, and must have been utterly horrific for Wendy, the victim. You know, she she didn't die immediately. She was hit about the head and staggered and then tried to get up and um, must have known, wondered what on earth was happening. Then she lost consciousness and then was taken to hospital. And, um, you know, she didn't die immediately. So um, um, you um, sitting here in the graveyard... You know, this is not a theoretical midsummer murders kind of crime. No. It's a horrific, absolutely horrific event. And um, my feeling is the uh, the, uh, the victim of this uh, that's been completely overlooked is Wendy Sewell. In the initial uh, reports, both newspaper and court reports, she's described as, um, and I quote, attractive housewife. Mm. How was she portrayed in court? It was a very well, nice um, picture. Yeah, I mean, it was, it, was, it was very much almost like the perfect marriage to a certain extent. Because it struck me that you start asking questions mm. and the Bakewell rumour mill really starts <laughs> kind of kicking yeah. off. And suddenly everyone's got a theory about who did it. And suddenly all these stories start coming out about Wendy, which, you know, obviously some of it's going to be just malicious, but some of it is, mm. it's a very different picture from the... Well, word. it is. I mean, you know, the victim was was another aspect of the my investigation to look at, you know, what was Wendy really like? You know, was she the perfect housewife? Was she the loving wife of David Sewell, etc.? You know, was everything happy uh, in the marriage? And quite clearly it wasn't. On the 12th of September, 1973, Wendy Sewell was viciously attacked with a pickaxe handle as she took a lunchtime stroll in the cemetery in Bakewell, a small market town in rural Derbyshire. It was the first day back at school for children after the long six-week summer holidays, and it was a warm and sunny day. 17-year-old Stephen Downing, who worked at the cemetery, was arrested, tried, and then convicted of a murder. He was given an indefinite life sentence. 20 years later, the editor of the local newspaper, Don Hale, started to investigate the safety of this conviction 
as I've explored in previous episodes of Reporter, Murder in the Graveyard. I'm Lucy Ditchmont. Bakewell was, and still is, a small, tight-knit rural town. It's quite remote, and news, gossip and rumour travel fast. At the trial, and throughout the coverage of the case, Wendy was repeatedly characterised as a attractive married woman who worked in an office. But she must have been a more rounded person than the image portrayed. We're in the Working Men's Club car park. I'm going to show you where Wendy would walk up to the cemetery from her, her work, where she worked. I'm Susan Mills. I lived in Bakewell for 40 years. I know all the people involved. Because we were at the dental practice in Bakewell, we knew all the people, really, uh, including Stephen and Wendy, and Stephen's family and Wendy's family. Wendy worked in Bakewell, um, and she she was known in Bakewell. She worked at the Forestry Commission. You'd see her knocking around Bakewell a lot. She always struck me as being very, very attractive, and she did walk about sometimes with... No shoes on. She did. She did. I don't know why. Not all the time. Yeah, she was walking around barefoot. Yeah, she did, but not all the time, only occasionally. And she certainly wouldn't do it in winter. But she did occasionally. <laughs> She'd walk barefoot. In Bakewell. That must have yeah. turned a few heads. Was she a hippie? I won't say that she was a hippie. No, she wasn't a hippie because she didn't sort of come from that background. But she'd wear... I mean, I remember in dark green velvet hips to bell bottoms. I can remember those as clear as anything, the dark green velvet bell bottom hips that she used to wear. And she had a very good figure and she had long dark hair. I mean, she wasn't beautiful, but she was striking. Um, and she she had a, a, a lot of personality, very chatty. And she had friends and she was a nice, nice person. Did she sort of stand out as being sort of she was fashionable but then in that in the sort of uh, when i knew sort of early 70s um fashion was quite i mean we used to wear those block things and and it was it was coming out of the 60s and into the 70s she wasn't on her own yeah Wendy's also said to have been interested in martial arts judo in particular house restoration and apparently she'd taken courses in car maintenance mirroring her husband David's interest in vintage motors. David and Wendy came to Bakewell from Sheffield after Wendy's father died uh, because Wendy's mum lived in Bakewell and Wendy's mum needed a lot of support after... She she was a lovely lady, but I don't think she was very strong-natured. Because Wendy's father died quite suddenly, didn't he? Yes, yes. But Marjorie, Madge as she was called, she needed Wendy's support. And so they came to Bakewell. But um, 
David was not an easy person, mm-hmm. and I think probably he was as possessive of Wendy as Wendy's mum wanted her to be with her. So, you know what I mean? So, uh, David thought that Wendy was probably spending too much time with mum, and mum was wanting Wendy's support. They were both possessive of Wendy. Oh, poor Wendy. What did she, where, where was she in that? Uh, yeah, well... Um, I think she was sort of torn between the two. And also, she'd only just lost her father. So I think Wendy had a bit of a a, a, a battle going on there to keep them both happy. Yeah. So this is the uh, place where Wendy Sewell was murdered in uh, 1973. Tragically, her dad's death and a sense of duty towards her mum might have led Wendy to the cemetery that September afternoon. Wendy's dad had died, and um, David Sewell believes that um, Wendy actually was coming up to the cemetery where we're sitting on that day in question. She was, they still hadn't put an inscription on um, her dad's uh, gravestone. She was coming to look at, look round for um, you know, examples of ins- inscriptions. Although, that said, I think she liked to have a walk at midday, and she just walked up from the town where she was working. So... It could just have been a lunchtime stroll. Wendy, she strikes me as a very strong woman with a lot to give, but that's a lot of demands to have on you. I don't think she was strong, no. really. Not really. She tried her best. Uh, but I don't think she was a strong-natured girl, really. Um, I think... She tried to please too many people, and I don't think you're strong when you do that. I think she was trying to please them both, and I think that caused problems in their marriage. Spread too thin. Was he was he jealous as well as possessive? I think perhaps he was. He always struck me as a a guy that he never made conversation. He wasn't a chatty soul. Some people said it was a bit standoffish and a bit snobbish, if you know what I mean. But she was the total opposite, you see. She was very chatty and she had friends and she was a nice, nice person. So that's where they kept their tools. Right. I'm Neil Mackay and we're in the uh, graveyard uh, in Bacon. I was trying to remember where she was found and... Um... What's your connection with the, the case and the story? Tell me about your involvement with that. Some years ago, I think it was in the early 2000s, I wrote a drama for the BBC called In Denial of Murder, which was an account of Don Hale's campaign to free Stephen Downing and also, to some extent, an account of Wendy Sewell's life. Having been given the go-ahead, I always then go back to original research. I go to the place where it happened. I try to talk to as many people as possible. I spoke to a lot of people who knew Wendy well. I spoke to um, a very good friend of both her and David Sewell, a woman called Leslie, who's a very, very nice woman and who who sort of knew Wendy probably better than anyone and, in fact, was there when she died in hospital at her bedside. And she gave me a really... um, valuable account of the the truth, I suppose, about Wendy's marriage. So what picture did Leslie paint? She painted a picture of, you know, of a young couple, David and Wendy, who came to live in Bakewell and sort of started a new life. They were outsiders to some extent. They were from the same small village outside Sheffield? From a village outside Sheffield. And um, so they built a life here, you know, in a sort of modern estate. 
David loved vintage cars. Wendy bought him a Bugatti car, and David actually later became, I think, the world's leading expert on Bugatti cars. He was called in to put valuations on Bugattis. Um, So they had that kind of life together. But David was quite a formal, conservative kind of man. Wendy was less so, and one way or another they kind of, um, you know, were kind of drifted apart a little bit. I think Wendy went off, I think she sort of moved out of the house, went to live in a guest house for a bit on her own. I think she then became concerned that um, David might be possibly being unfaithful to her. Um, Whether that was true, I have no idea, but I think she had that concern. And that sort of made her um, sort of leap into a relationship with a local man called John Marshall, whose family owned quite a famous shop in Bakewell. And she had an affair with him, and they sort of eloped to Edinburgh with no particular, just as a kind of foolish thing, no particular plan in mind, and had quite a good time, and, um, and then sort of came back to face the reckoning. Susan gave me a tour of the town. This is where Wendy worked. See, it's all boarded up now. And later it became the job centre. Really? Yeah, but now it's just boarded up. But she would have worked there because I think the blood donors were at one side and the forestry commission at the other side. And where, where, where was yours? My dental practice was in the middle. This is where John worked. And this is John Marshall? John Marshall, yes, because his, his parents owned this shop. The posh clothes shop, which is now a less posh Costa. Costa coffee. And he worked here. It was a big shop. And it was on two floors, so you had men's, ladies, and then you went up and the changing rooms, you know, the dressing rooms were up there. It was really class. It was really classy. Tell me about meeting John Marshall and who who he was. John Marshall was the son of Mr and Mrs Marshall, who owned Broughton Shop. He used to live up Baslow Road with his mum and dad, and John was... Another one with a possessive mother. <laughs> how, how old was he? he was the same age as you? No, he wasn't the same age as me, but he was probably about five years younger than Wendy. He was quite a character. He was a nice guy. Broughton's? Broughton's. It was Broughton's. It was like a, a, you'd call it a high-class drapers. I mean, it used to sell posh clothes that were way, way over my budget. Or beautiful, like, tweed things? Oh, and all all sorts, everything you could get. I'll tell you who used to shop there. Do you remember Last of the Summer Wine? Yeah. Nora Batty with her wrinkled stockings, the actress. She used to shop there. She used to come. It was like Celebrity Day when she used to come and shop there. Yeah, so... but she only wore (laughs) Yeah, but she used to shop there. And, of course, whenever she used to come, it was quite... It was quite a celebrity time when she came. Last of the Summer Wine was a British TV show about a group of senior citizens doing crazy japes in Yorkshire. It began in the year of Wendy's murder and ran for over 37 years. It was a sitcom, apparently, but I never found it funny. So they were a quite well-to-do family owning this big posh drapers mm. clothes shop. Um, and he was the youngest son. Who? Yeah. So what was John Marshall doing just tazzing around town in his new cars? No, 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 no. <laughs> Wendy worked opposite John Marshall. Oh, right. John worked in the shop? 
John was like manager. Well, I think he managed it of a fashion, and he managed the shop, and Wendy worked opposite. And oh. and John had got the gift of this. Was he quite charming? Very charming, very chatty, uh, and he was he was funny too. Nobody disliked him. Yeah, their romance might have been passionate, but Wendy and John's elopement was short lived. It didn't last. I mean, I think we're talking weeks, you know, oh. only very short time. They haven't got any money. They didn't have jobs. <laughs> yeah. So it's a kind of love, love, love dream it, doesn't I fuel it, itself. I think it was a spur of the moment thing and then they both realised what a big mistake they'd made. And she went back to her mum. She didn't go back to David, she went back to her mum. And he went and he went back to his mum. He couldn't survive without his mum. Mm. But the trouble is she was... She, she was pregnant. The impact of Wendy's illegitimate pregnancy in a conservative place like Bakewell in the late 1960s can't be stressed too much. What was the thoughts about her pregnancy? I mean, it must have been fairly obvious. Was she, was she still in the town when I she think was pregnant? Was quite, I think it was quite secret, but everybody knew, if you know what I mean. Yes. The options for the mother were limited and none were easy. You could persuade your husband to bring the baby up as their own, get divorced and marry the father, maybe attempt to raise the child as a single parent, or give the baby up for adoption. Yeah, I mean, John was a very young man, um, a very, very genial man, good fun, really good fun, a good laugh. Writer Neil Mackay met both David Saw and John Marshall several times whilst working on his BBC drama In Denial of Murder sort of endearing in a way, and that's what his friends will also tell you about him. But obviously not not uh, at that time with the sort of emotional maturity to realise it would be not advisable to have an affair with a married woman. And also, you know, he, he, he wasn't in a position to sort of be a, a father to the child that ensued. There was no way... Mrs. Marshall would have accepted Wendy. No way. Is that because she's well? A, married? she was married, and and B, because she was she, she wouldn't have been good enough for John. She, John would John would have to marry somebody from a a good family and on the same level as them. So it wouldn't it it, it it wouldn't it wouldn't have worked for Mrs. Marshall, and he 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 went off in the army. David found it very difficult for her to have a child that wasn't his. I'm not sure that he even wanted children. I think David and Wendy did, they started some kind of relationship, although I don't think she moved, I think she stayed with the mother. And she felt very guilty having left him. So she was, she was trying to make amends, um, but he, he wouldn't accept her back while she was pregnant and he wouldn't it, there was no way David would keep somebody else's child it wouldn't be in his it wouldn't be in his thinking he wasn't that sort of person so it, it was a question of choosing him or the baby she had to choose I, I, she would have to choose him or the baby so the child was given up for adoption which was obviously a very, very difficult and painful thing for her. 
at that time, divorce was not an easy business. So, you know, you might, there was, of course, it was legal and possible, but it was, there's a lot of shame attached mm. to it still. And blame, um, wasn't it? Was shame, it and, shame and blame, whereas now people just think, well, it, marriage didn't work, you know. If Wendy had wanted to keep the child, she would have had to live with her mother, I think. And But I don't think Wendy's mother was strong enough natured mm. to take that on. Yeah. Because Wendy would have had to carry on working. Uh, and don't forget, I think Madge would be only in her 50s herself. It, it was more Wendy giving Madge support rather than Madge giving yeah. Wendy yeah. support. Yeah, so take the child into that. Yeah. And also in terms of um, women's wages. I mean, she would have been in a pittance because, I mean, I earned... What was I earning at that time? About £9 a week, £10 a week. Well, Wendy wouldn't be on much more. And she was, was it a secretary she was at Forest Yeah, t- a secretarial, I think, sort of typist type mm. thing, yes. So, you know, the child was was given up for adoption initially, although the later elements of his his family took over the care of the child. And uh, so it, it ended quite happily in that respect. They were young and in love, but it was an ill-fated romance that was to become more than just a passing affair. So, Ed, what are you uh, what are you looking at? What are you reading now? This is an article written for the Matlock Mercury by Amanda Hatfield. So it's an interview with John Marshall about Wendy Sewell. Just read us a bit of this article. This week, the man who claims to have loved Wendy for a few years towards the end of her life has decided that he wants people to know the truth about her and put straight the rumours which have dogged him ever since she died. Um, John Marshall is a tall, chivalrous man, private but clearly tenacious. He says that once he's made up his mind, he won't be swayed. It is easy to understand why Wendy would have been flattered by his attention all those years ago and allowed herself to be drawn into an impulsive affair. He is not proud of what he did, and even now he can't help but seem guilty when he talks of the way he pursued another man's wife. He says, The first time I saw her, she was sat in a car beside her husband, and I knew straight away that I wanted to get to know her better. He explained with genuine emotion in his voice. She was beautiful, with lovely dark hair and very wonderful eyes. I was just 21, and from then on I had a crush on her and made many attempts to catch her attention. In the end, I was at the home of a friend near to hers and I persuaded him to give me an empty bowl so I could go to borrow some sugar. <laughs> Classic. Classic 70s. <laughs> That's a good wooing technique, would you Yeah, absolutely, yeah. After that, we talked and talked and just got on so well together. We used to walk for miles and saw each other almost every day. I hate it when I read what has been said about her. Although we did not stay close, we did stay in touch and I saw her the day before she died. Wendy had stopped in the streets to talk to me and another woman because I had a new puppy and she wanted to see it. She loved animals. When Wendy became pregnant, we wanted to keep the child and work things out, but that was not to be. I resent the implication that I was shipped off to the army to be kept out of the way, says John, defiantly. I joined up on a whim after moving away from the town when Wendy went back to her husband. I felt I had to stay away, but my family didn't force me to go. In fact, they were horrified when I admitted I had joined the army and paid to get me out two years later. The Marshall family also took care of Wendy's baby. He was adopted by John's sister and brought up in Canada. Now a handsome 34-year-old with a striking resemblance to Wendy, he knows about his upbringing and the tragic story of his mother's short life. My family were very supportive of Wendy. 
Our son was never hidden, and I don't know what would have happened in future years had Wendy not died. Now he knows me and my other children, and we are all very close, explained John. Over the years I've read what has been said and kept quiet, but I've always been waiting until I felt the time was right to put the record straight. Only I can do that, and I want to do it now. Wendy was just 32 when she died in such a terrible way. I want people to remember the woman I loved as someone who was beautiful, full of warmth, caring and above all fun. She deserves nothing less. That whole thing about adoption within families was quite common back then, wasn't it? I mean, you, you must have come across it. That's right, yeah, it was very common in those days. You know, I came across people and it was kind of like, you know, you, you know, your mum's your sister, your sister's your mum. It was kind of a way of kind of keeping keeping illegitimate children close, hushing it up, but not just kind of incorporating them in the community, I suppose. Well, that was it. I think it was a way of keeping families together and allowing the children to be kept by their families. And it's sort of a way of keeping it away from the authorities as well, I think, to a certain extent. Yeah, I think it was quite common. Bakewell was such a hive of gossip. You know, I mean, it's like when my mum died and my dad left us, the gossip would be terrific. But... Wendy herself was in a dilemma. She didn't know what to do. She wanted the child. She, she wanted to make amends to David. She wanted to support her mother. She was just in an impossible situation. And if, you, if you've got a husband and you're having somebody else's child that doesn't support you, then you have to let that child go. I mean, there don't... Don't get me wrong, Wendy's not the only one that's had a child by somebody else in Bakewell, but the husband was supportive. I mean, I could name two babies that were born in Bakewell in exactly the same thing, but the husbands were supportive and that child was brought up by the husband, even though that child was not the husband's child. Not his biological Yeah, child. yeah. And so... It was the support of the husband that made them uh, let them to go on and have a have an, a normal life. But Wendy didn't have that support from David, so she had to let the baby, Thomas, go. I met Wendy's husband on several occasions. What was he like? Um, he was uh, reputed to be a rather tough bluff. Um, uh, rather uh, grumpy man um, from Sheffield. Um, uh, but when I met him, um, I could see that he was happily married to his second wife. He was really quite genial, and um, although obviously very upset, he was very forthcoming about uh, the marriage with Wendy and what he thought had gone wrong, and and he had a sense of... Uh, of um, remorse for, um, for that he felt he'd had a part in the marriage failing so she sort of felt trapped and she went back to David and I don't think David ever quite realized what it had cost Wendy to have this child given up you know she obviously had a strong um, mother's streak in her and um, David did say to me um, that if he'd understood the power of a woman's love he'd have you know the force of the desire to be a mother and um he'd have he'd have treated gently as uh, uh, wendy he'd have been much more sympathetic and what 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 actions would have been taken i don't know 
but it was never to be because um, you know one day when he was at work at Rolls Royce in Derby, he got a phone call to say she'd been um, attacked, and that she later died as a result of that attack. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me that wasn't an option i never really was a salad guy that's just not who i am but noom worked for me get your personalized plan today at noom.com real noom user compensated to provide their story in four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. <laughs> William Tyrrell was a three-year-old boy who disappeared from the township of Kendall on the New South Wales mid-north coast on 12 September 2014. Police have been told he was outside playing one minute and gone the next. His disappearance has become one of the most puzzling investigations in Australian history. It has been going on now for almost five years. Millions of dollars have been spent. The strike force at one point had 26 full-time detectives. Hundreds more around Australia have been exploring 600 possible suspects. And what has all that been for? William is still missing. My name is Caroline Overington. This investigation, Nowhere Child, is available now. To hear more, just search for Nowhere Child in your podcast app. So my name is Tony Blockley, Head of Policing at the University of Derby. When I retired, I was Chief Superintendent or the Head of Crime, so I had responsibility for all crime in and around Derbyshire. I mean, I can remember speaking to one particular individual and um, he was describing various things about the the crime. This was a police officer. And um, I remember him breaking down. I think sometimes as police officers, you are able to put some of these memories into a deep, dark cabinet in the back of your mind and lock the door and walk away from it. 
However, of course, when I start talking to him, I unlock that cabinet and draw all those memories out and it puts him straight back. And, and he was, yeah, he was describing some, you know, very significant uh, events or descriptions of what was happening at the time to the point where, it, you know, he did, he broke down. So. Was, was he one of the first people to find? Yes. Yeah, he was, yeah. Yeah, he was. Wendy was severely beaten. I mean, she was... Uh, the way that she'd been molested, for want of a better word, she'd been... Um, she had been sexually assaulted. And I think that came out in the trial. You know, the injuries to her head. I mean, she didn't die straight away. She took... Uh, she, she didn't die. She was taken straight to Sheffield, where she died some days later. Uh, but I think the fact that... You, you know, just what you see when somebody has been beaten around the head as she had been was, must have been quite horrendous, really. Twenty years after the horrendous physical attack on Wendy, renewed interest in the crime and Don Hale's coverage in the Matlock Mercury saw the national media revisit the case. But the angle that some of the coverage took upset people, including Wendy's friends and family. Her husband, David Saul, spoke to writer Neil Mackay. He was upset uh, uh, when the campaign to free Stephen Downing started up that Wendy's name appeared to become um, blackened and, um, you know, she was... There was a sort of insinuation, I'm not sure where it came from, that she used to sort of, in quotes, put it about a bit and she acquired mm. this epithet of the Bakewell Tart, which he found extremely upsetting. Yeah, yes, I think... It, that's a very nasty label which seems to be stuck. Um, and was taken up by the Nationals, I believe. Yes, it became known as the Bakewell Tart story, you know. I was quite shocked at the way Wendy Sewell was portrayed. I think there was a lot of sort of assumptions about her. So my name is Jackie Dunn. I used to work as a junior reporter at the Matlock Mercury in 1994, yeah. Um, I remember reading things that had been saying she was a bit of a slut and she was promiscuous and things that actually, even then, 20 odd years ago, I was quite shocked that somebody would assume, you know, that if you've, you've, you've had a few lovers, you're just a terrible person. But there was an element of that in a lot of the things I read. Like she was sort of, you know, she was painted as this promiscuous woman and she was just an ordinary person who worked in an office. He was, you know, quite young and... Quite vibrant by the sounds. Yeah, yeah. These days, you wouldn't get away with it. Now we're in the, in the Me Too era. You know, people can see what a despicable attitude it is. It's almost like the victims of the Yorkshire Ripper. You know, some were prostitutes, but there was an attitude amongst the police that women brought it upon themselves. And I think the Bakewell Tart label, there's an element to it which Wendy was to blame for being flirty with men and all the rest of it, as if somehow or other, uh, well, she was a tart, and uh, she clearly wasn't. She was a woman who was in an unhappy marriage, but even if she had been, to sort of condemn somebody with that kind of epithet is a pretty shameful thing to do, I think. Yeah, and, and what relevance does it have to her deserving 
the horrendous fate. No, no relevance at all. No relevance at all. And yet there was a sort of insinuation that perhaps, you know, she'd brought it on herself and, you know, in the same way that women who wear uh, certain kinds of clothing might be encouraging rape or whatever. So I think that was very difficult for her husband and her family and her mother who continued to live in Bakewell for a long, long time after Wendy was murdered. And her mother was still alive when you were researching? Her mother was. I didn't meet her. I tried to meet her. She didn't want to discuss it. But I did know people who knew her. She was an old lady then. I knew that she was upset and confused by what had happened. I mean, on the one hand, you know, your daughter's murdered in the most incredibly savage way. And then later on, an account of the murder emerges, which appears to um, damn her daughter for sort of, in effect, bringing it on herself. I was interviewing Neil in the cemetery in Bakewell where the murder took place, which which I found a bit freaky anyway. Then, as you can hear from this next clip, something unsettling happened. I don't know what uh, Don's attitude to the Bakewell tart uh, epithet was. Pardon? There's a guy over there. Is he looking at us? No, he was staring at us through the bottom of the front hedge over there. Right, OK. Um, do you want to stop and have a look? Because it's yeah. quite interesting. Um, wasn't behind. I'm not sure I'd recognise him now. I've not seen him for a few years. That's interesting. We could become part of the story. Yeah. Just seen them. So it looked very like Stephen just walked peering yeah. through the head just as. Yeah. 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 But it's, it's the sort of thing you do. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah so, 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 you're talking about. Um, the sort of demonisation or... Yes, um, that's right. So she sort of was demonised and I think her mother, Wendy's mum, found that very difficult indeed. OK, a bit of explanation here. I found being watched slightly unnerving because I've been in touch with Stephen Downing, who still lives in Bakewell and whose house overlooks the graveyard where we were sitting the day before. And I told him I'd be in town that day and that I was going to interview Neil, who Stephen knew. Prior to this, I told Stephen about this podcast series and asked if he wanted to take part. But the vehemence of his refusal had shocked me. So to see someone fitting Stephen's description peering through the hedge as I was recording was unsettling, to say the least. And did people ever get to the bottom of where this kind of labels and epithets came from? Um, I don't know. Um, the media's a funny thing. You know, it's Chinese whispers and, and uh, people will create a thing and then probably deny deny knowledge of it. So I, I really I really don't know the origin of it, but it's stuck. Unfortunately, the headline, The Bakewell Tart, is too good a headline for, for journalists to miss. I'm Matthew Paris, a Times columnist. Matthew was also the former MP for West Derbyshire, which includes Bakewell notwithstanding that we do not make Bakewell tarts in Bakewell. They are Bakewell puddings, not Bakewell tarts. But it was an unkind story. And it was, it was also unkind on, 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 on Wendy herself. But what grabs the press grabs the press. And it did at least keep the story, if not lively, still kind of alive. And, and that will have helped Don in a way, in, 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 his, in his efforts to, to get the whole thing reopened. As I said at the beginning of this episode, local journalist Don Hale, the editor of The Mallet Mercury, was asked by Stephen Downing's parents to investigate the conviction of their son. 
He'd been in prison for 20 years for the murder of Wendy Sewell and they believed he wasn't guilty. Don Hale denies that the headlines started with him. The mail from the Daily Mail uh, initially, and others picked it up later on to run with the same, the same tag, but they, they, they did stories about me and the work and, what, and the story about the campaign, etc. But they called the victim the Baitwell Tart and they painted her... Uh, yeah, the painted the victim pretty awful at times. Yeah, um, the headlines are shocking, yeah, aren't they? Um, made it look like she'd got a whole string of lovers and, and what have you. So that, and yeah. it was a completely different aspect and caused me a lot of problems. And the fact that they called her the Baitwell Tart is something I never would have dreamed of calling anyway. Um, it, it, was, it was a tag for the, the red tops as much as anything, really. Uh, but the males sort of ran with this and seemed to love playing on this and inferring you know, perhaps correctly in the sense that it was one of the lovers that was probably responsible for it because of what had gone on. But it's just a very derogatory representation of a woman it who, was. whatever her yeah. lifestyle, didn't ask to be bludgeoned to death. No, no, and that's yeah. it. You know, I've taken stick for years over that and it was absolutely nothing to do with me and nothing I could do and I was sort of tried to play that down. Mm. I've never... But it, 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 was, it was very difficult and, of course, it then closed one or two avenues down to you because a lot of people took exception to this. No matter whether they believed it was me or not or whatever... Uh, you were a journalist, you all tarred with the same brush, uh, you've all said this, I'm not going to speak to you again, etc. And it caused all mm. sorts of problems. In our interviews, Don told me about the discrepancies he'd found between the court papers, police reports and witness statements and what he heard when he went out to talk to people in Bakewell itself. These contradictions led him to think that there was more to this case than met the eye and that Wendy's personal history might have led other people to want to silence her. It was always said during my investigations that she'd had a number of affairs and eventually had a child out of wedlock with one of the boyfriends. I put this in, in the report. I mean, it was said at the original trial that, um, uh, you know, she had no children. And I think the impression given really that it was a, a reasonable sort of marriage in a sense. There, there was no mention of any affairs or boyfriends or whatever. Uh, certainly no child out of wedlock. And I wonder what impression it might have had on the jury if some of this had been made known. It might have given uh, cause for concern. It could have been somebody else that was responsible. And if this was the case, then perhaps there were other suspects for this crime, casting real doubt on Stephen's guilt. When you were bringing up this information, I mean, some people have suggested or might, or might think, oh, this is victim-shaming. Mm. No, not at all. I mean, I have tried very hard in the past to, to protect her, her image, I never used the, the tag that some of the nationals used, obviously. I was dead against uh, any any form of that. And for a long, long time, I tried to steer away from her uh, background, if you like, uh, the allegations about boyfriends, etc. But um, it was the, uh, well, Barry Cape on the Criminal Cases Review Commissioner who was insisting on more evidence uh, about the boyfriends and, in particular, the claim that she'd had a child out of wedlock. In order to be granted an appeal and the chance to argue Stephen's innocence in court, Don had to present the Criminal Cases Review Commission with new evidence that threw reasonable doubt on the original conviction. And he kept saying to me, you know, this is wrong, uh, I've been told this information by um, yeah, other, other parties, shall we say, um, including the police, and this, this is, seems to be wrong, what evidence can you produce? I said, well, what do you want? I said, um, he said, all I need you to do is produce evidence that she's had at least one affair. So I said, well, that's fine. Um, so I phoned up my contact, one of my correspondents in Bakewell, who by pure coincidence had had her child uh, probably a week or two before her. 
and she knew Wendy, she knew Wendy's mother, and she knew obviously that she'd been pregnant and who was the father, and that it was all becoming a little bit embarrassing. And um, she was able to give me uh, the, the date and the year and everything for it. So, with so, that, she, so she'd been in the maternity hospital um, at the same time as Wendy, both of them giving birth yeah. to children at the same time. Yeah. Armed with that information, I went down to uh, uh, the Batewell Register Office and they were able to print off a copy of the, the birth certificate straight away for me. Um, so it gives all the details apart from the name of the father. Darley Hall, boy. So, yeah, it confirms it was it was a boy, uh, Thomas. Saw mother. Um, it gives all the information. Yeah. I think it's got the date and... Yeah. Has it got the time on it? I'm not sure on that now. Uh, no. Wendy Sewell, formerly Crawshaw, Brooklands, Wydale Crescent, Bakewell, a mother. Oh, so so so. This was registered. And this was finally kind so, of the final evidence that. And why was this relevant? Well, it was asked for by the commission. Nothing sensational about it. Just just factual evidence. And this was again to widen the potential roots of doubt rather than casting. Oh yeah yeah her, yeah. Her... It was it was it was in the forms. Uh, uh, I'm not sure exact words how it was how it was produced, but they wanted to know uh, why somebody else may have been responsible, and there were a lot of claims that she'd had a row with one of the boyfriends the night before, and possibly even on the day when we knew there was an argument in the office, and her boss had seen somebody else at the other side of a of a screen, and there were raised voices. Uh, it was a male. There were implications that there may have been at least three or four previous boyfriends during this this marriage breakup, etc. And then she came into a boss, Mr. Osmerson, and gave him a note to say she's going for a breath of fresh air mm. and never returned. Who was the man that Wendy spoke to? We'll be looking at the shadowy figure behind the screen and at Wendy's movements in the next episode of Reporter. And so that all the information presented to the court in Stephen's original trial was not the whole truth. No. It was an edited version presenting a particular picture yes. which there were more possibilities behind it. That's right, yeah. I mean, with... I was asked, you know, quite bluntly to, to produce some evidence that showed she'd had some affairs. And, and like, like we said, I mentioned what was said in, at the trial, the original trial, and it was a slightly different version of the truth. Um, it didn't give the full facts. And I, I, I still believe that if the jury had been fully aware that she'd had this child in 1968 with a boyfriend and the circumstances and uh, knowledge of other boyfriends involved, it may have put a different slant on the case. It would have given a different emphasis, which the defence could have used, possibly, to say it may have been, in view of the, the row and the voices in, uh, on the day she disappeared, that a another was involved with this. Don was convinced now that his investigation was starting to get closer to the truth, uncovering vital clues and discovering leads to new suspects. long time since Wendy was murdered, 46 years now. Do you think that she's been representative fairly? No, most definitely not. My feeling is the, uh, the, uh, the victim of this uh, that's been completely overlooked is Wendy Sewell, um, who, um, you know, was a woman in an unhappy marriage, I took her lunchtime walk and was uh, was ferociously attacked and murdered um, for no good reason on a quiet day with the crows cawing in the woods and all the rest of it. So 
Uh, so I believe she was a victim of it, and I believe also her mother, Madge Crawshaw, was a uh, victim of, of this. I believe also uh, her husband, uh, Wendy's husband, David, was a victim. And her friends, you know, they suffered enormously at what, at what happened. And I think that sense of perspective is, has been missing, really. Indeed, I think Wendy's been missing from just, yeah, just yes. the middle of it. Yes, exactly. At the heart of the story is a, is, a, is, a, is a sort of touching human story. You know, we all make mistakes in life. I don't know anybody who doesn't, and uh, nobody's perfect. Marriages fall apart, people can be unhappy, all sorts of things can happen. But, you know, that was kind of her life and her business. And, you know, for most of us, we have the privacy to work through those things and deal with it in private and get over it and but for Wendy the whole thing was kind of um, you know became ventilated in public and um, that loss of privacy she lost her life and she lost her privacy you know next time on reporter walking with witnesses it had happened so close to home, overlooked by all these houses. Lunchtime, a busy time. It was like Piccadilly Circus, you know. Lots of people couldn't help but see something, really. But who saw what? And was someone putting pressure on Don to stop digging? more about Wendy Sewell's life and Don Hale's fight to clear Stephen Downing's name, then please subscribe to the podcast. Search for Reporter Murder in the Graveyard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or on your favourite podcast app. And you can delve even deeper into the podcast by visiting our website, reporterpodcast.com. And please feel free to rate and review the series. Reporter Murder in the Graveyard is presented and produced by me, Lucy Ditchmont. It's mixed by Dave Dodd. The music is composed and performed by Edwin Pearson. The executive producer is Matt Hall. And reporter Murder in the Graveyard is a Wireless Studios production. A brutal murder. A wrongful conviction. A 27-year fight for justice. Read the full story that inspired this podcast. In Murder in the Graveyard, investigative journalist Don Hale tells the story of his relentless fight to overturn the longest miscarriage of justice the UK has ever seen. Delve deeper into the case that shocked the nation. Murder in the Graveyard. Available now in paperback, ebook, and audio narrated by author Don Hale himself. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.